Australia is simultaneously having fire and floods. Across the USA, there are more extreme weather events than ever before. You know, in Texas, the grid struggles with summer and with winter now. And today is 41 degrees in London, hotter than it's ever been in Madrid. And it's just like, don't look up. Like the world is boiling around us and people are arguing over whether we should bother doing anything about it. That's Greg Jackson, the founder and CEO of Octopus Energy. He started a company, a green energy supplier, in 2015, and boy, has it grown. Over 3 million homes in the UK currently get their energy from Octopus, and they also supply to the USA, Japan, Germany, Spain, Italy, France, and New Zealand. They were valued at nearly $5 billion at the end of 2021. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and this is a podcast where we have real conversations between founders so you can find out what it's really like. Octopus Energy is a fascinating business, not only because of its growth in a highly competitive industry, but also because Greg has rejected traditional business structures. Despite having three and a half thousand staff, Octopus Energy has no HR department. Perhaps fittingly, I talked to Greg last month on one of the hottest days of the year in the UK so far, and when the net zero target was a hot topic during the Conservative Party leadership race. He clearly cares about combating climate change, but before getting into his thoughts on that, the energy crisis and his unique leadership style, I wanted to find out about the upbringing that made him who he is. I was brought up by a single mum. She had three kids. Uh, My brother was about a year old. I think my sister was about seven. I was about eight when when, uh, she became single. And that meant she was very busy. I think it had two or three massive influences on me. Uh, Really positive ones, right? Uh, One way that mum coped with three kids was by giving us a lot of freedom. And so we had really clear sense of what was right and wrong, but a lot of freedom within that. And and so I think there was no spoon feeding. And and that meant that for me, I'm quite creative and energetic. I was able to discover and learn all kinds of things that interested me and pursue those interests that ended up eventually becoming, for example, technology. And it's part of the reason we are where we are today. It's also part of the reason that I've got this tremendous respect for people but I'm a parent, it's really hard work. To do it on your own with three kids and no money is unbelievably difficult. We've got a society where people criticize you know, single parents. It's an astonishing amount of job they do. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a new dad and my wife went to a hen, hen do for a, a weekend, two weekends ago, and she came back. I was like, honestly, single parents is so absurd to me. It's so absurd. Yeah. One glimpse, one weekend, and it is almost too much. Yeah, and, and so look, look, those millions of talented people out there are a great example just of a way in which, you know, if you can do that, you can do what companies can do. So anyway, my mum brought us up. Uh, she yeah, made ends meet, but she also decided to go studying uh, in order to get a degree and, and, and be able to change her life and ours. And on top of that, she also did voluntary work for, for things she was passionate about. So, you know, if you can pack all that in, I, I don't know, I mean, there's, it's inspirational to me about what we can achieve. Uh, you know, many companies uh, put job ads out there asking for people with, you know, leadership and creativity and, and so on. Uh, and then people start work and they're completely hidebound by the processes and the rules within a company. And so companies recruit great people, but then constrain them. And that's why so many people, you know, when, when you're sitting in the pub or talking with friends, they'll, they'll be negative about their work, not not because they don't want to do a good job, but because they want to do a great job and they feel the company doesn't let them. So I think it's real understanding that if there are people out there who can do the sort of thing my mum did, they can do pretty much anything a company wants. 
Um, so you mentioned uh, financial strain um, and you mentioned, obviously, you know, I suppose your kids are having a very different understanding of of growing up to the experience that you had growing up, which, by the way, I find a really fascinating philosophical discussion to discuss with entrepreneurs as well, where, you know, a lot of us um, do come from different backgrounds than the ones that we want to create for ourselves. And then you are in a different standing in society with money and you suddenly realize that a lot of the things that turned you into the motivated go-getter that you are might be the things you're accidentally not giving to your kids because they've got a completely different view of the world. Um, So I've almost got two questions there. Um, one is how do you think of that sort of philosophical difference when you're bringing up children to um, the relationship you had with money and um, having and having not? And then the second part is obviously, you know, what impact did growing up with financial restraints have on you? Yeah, so look, I think, first of all, in terms of financial restraints, I think for me, it had two impacts. The first was kind of no real fear of failure. I think, you know, one thing for people who've been brought up in a reasonably well-off or very well-off kind of background is, uh, you know, they don't know what it's like not to have that. And, and often that can create fear of failure. So I, in, in a way, I was looking not to have fear of failure. Um, but the second is, you know, a huge kind of social conscience because, you know, everybody wants the best for their kids. Everybody wants to be able to look after them. And I think a society where some people are so hard up that some of the stuff that others may take for granted, you know, the, the, the you might call the basics are not there. I, I truly believe we, we shouldn't have a world like that. We should have a world where everyone's at least got the chance of a decent life for them and their kids. In terms of thinking philosophically about my kids, the thing that I have learned with them is to just value who they are and not to want a particular thing for them. You know, I don't want them to either follow in my footsteps or do the opposite of that. I taught them to do the thing that's right for them. And, you know, by the way, I think that philosophy translates a lot into the workplace where a lot of people when they're at work are doing the job they're doing or the career they're, they're doing because uh, they want to please a parent or friends or they want to look good in front of peers or a partner. And actually, you know, that's not a route to happiness. And so to me, the route to happiness is, is discovering who someone is. So letting someone discover who they are. And then pursue that. That goes for your kids and it goes at work. So just coming back to, uh, I, I guess some of the questions I'm asking here really are, for me, my curiosity is always, always begins with, uh, why does this person do this? Like, like you just said, any creative human being, especially emphasis on the word creative, which, you know, I, I, I think of entrepreneurs as um, you're creating something one way or another, no matter what it is. Um, you could choose to do anything. And sometimes life takes you down a certain path. Sometimes it's because you meet people. Quite often there are uh, things that happen in their childhood that maybe post-rationalization creates the story. Maybe it is the spark that sends someone on the journey. Um, What is it about your childhood, do you think, that uh, has relevance to building a giant energy company? So... um... It's sometimes difficult to talk about this because it can come across wrong. But look, um, for me, there were a few times in my childhood when I discovered there were things I was really good at. I remember we did some exams uh, towards the end of primary school and I got the highest mark possible in every one of them. And, and, and no one else had done that. Uh, by the way, that's not to be 
arrogant about that. It was just a discovery. Um, and the same like persisted through secondary school. And I didn't work particularly, I mean, at all hard actually at secondary school. You know, I just happened to have a combination of things that I, mean, I was good at doing the stuff that schools wanted to do academically. And, and so I got a sense, and I, I don't know where it came from actually, but that you didn't want to waste gifts or talents. And that really meant something to me. And so doing my best has been something that is a guiding principle. But I was also, me and my sister used to go to Sunday school. And, and maybe this was a childcare strategy from mum because we weren't a religious family. And I realized that was probably a way, <laughs> you know, of um, is, is quite smart parenting. Uh, but there were a lot of values there that really mattered to me about, you know, putting others before yourself or thinking about what, what you could do for others. And so, uh, you know, uh, in my early 20s and mid-20s, uh, I was quite politically active, but I realized I, mean, I, I stood for the council once in an election and I lost by, I think, 23 votes and, and realized that if you don't get voted for, you can't do anything. Whereas in business, everything, every customer, every employee is the ability to do something, something useful. And, and so for me, business became a great way of pursuing uh, the chance to drive change. Now, by the way, it doesn't mean I think business is a charity or a political thing. It's absolutely not. You know, our job is to create value for shareholders. If, you know, if I was differently wired, maybe I'd work for a charity instead, but I've always been driven by kind of doing stuff that is good for society, good for my team and good for me. Um, and, and, and so it's not, I'm not proclaiming sort of some angelic selflessness. It's just the opportunity to kind of tick several boxes at once. And so... Um, that was kind of the, the the driver for me that said, right, you know, I'm going to pursue my life through business. And what I like about entrepreneurialism is being able to define that myself rather than at least, I mean, with a team, but not just working your way up a corporate ladder. It's like literally being able to make the decisions that matter. Mm. Did you always want to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think I probably did, actually. Um, I think when I was at school, as I said, look, I, you know, I did pretty well. But I, I really didn't like the, the, the nature of discipline of school um, and, you know, the kind of the application of a set of rules that just didn't feel right sometimes. Um, and, and the constraints, you know, like you might be unbelievably good at physics, but you still spend 90% of your time doing other subjects. I think the thing about entrepreneurism is it enables you to say, look, these are the things that I want to spend my time doing and I'm going to really focus and drive these. I think when you try, when you're climbing a corporate ladder, a lot of corporates, you know, you kind of there's a high risk that people become more engaged with trying to climb the ladder than trying to make the business successful. And you often see that they make the right decision for themselves, the wrong decision for the business. And the great thing about entrepreneurialism is, first of all, for you, for me, there's a much greater integrity between the decision for me and the decision of the business. And then if I can scale that as we grow a company, then I think we can grow a company where more of people's time and effort and, and ingenuity is spent building a better, bigger business than it is in the world of a corporate. So I guess I think it's better for me, but I also think if we do it right, we can do something much better as a business. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. 
It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. How did you get into entrepreneurship then? Did you, I mean, did you have a job first? Did you get straight into it? You know what? I mean, it's kind of, when I was at school, I wrote video games and, you know, the one or two that we wrote and I, mean, I wrote with a couple of friends. So you're a developer? Yeah. And, and and literally like, you know, went out and photo, back then video games were distributed on cassettes. Um, uh, for anyone listening who doesn't know about this world, a typical game was about 40 kilobytes, which is less than a JPEG these days. But anyway, um, and it was distributed on a cassette that took five minutes to load. Um, but the, um, you know, we would send those out from the bedroom. Now, by the way, we sold virtually none, but it was that kind of spirit that says like you, you create something and then you sell it. I always worked hard as a, as a teenager as well. I had milk ran and paper ran and did it, worked in a bingo club and things like that. So I always worked hard. I had a mindset and I don't think, I don't think it was necessarily wrong, but um, which was I had to get a proper job first. So I went to university, um, worked at, uh, Procter and Gamble for a bit, but I only, and and I and I feel bad about this now because I think it's a bit entitled. I was intended to leave Procter and Gamble to be an entrepreneur, um, and I don't think it's particularly. You know, I don't feel proud that I worked at a company with a view I was going to leave there. Um, Is that simply because now, as a boss, you can appreciate the other side of that? Yeah, not in a, not in a sort of selfish way, not in a way that goes like you know, someone. If I find members of our team in the same place, I kind of respect it because I've been there. But actually, it just feels a bit entitled. So, I, and I guess I've seen it from the other side. I don't, I don't resent it, but I now realise that, you know, look, a good employer in PNG was a great employer. A good employer kind of deserves this sort of mutual respect, and, and I think I probably didn't afford that to the extent I should have done. Just the flip side argument to that that I've always framed this stuff, by the way, um, is. I really genuinely believe, and maybe this is because I um, 
I'm trying to deal with the pain of every time, you know, a fucking superstar wants to move on and do something else. But hmm. I truly believe that at your best bet, you are basically borrowing the best brain power and best time and best years of each person. And you're lucky for each extra year of service you get from that person. And I can only imagine that much larger companies like Procter & Gamble, that has to be the philosophy, right? They they can't keep someone like Greg um, with them forever. It's probably not their practical reality, but do they get some of your best years out of you and does their business grow because of it? Awesome. I'm sure that is like the mutual expectation. Yeah, I think it's, look, it's a great observation, but I think, for example, I think Procter & Gamble is such a long-term investor in people that if you leave in the early stages, you've got a lot more of them than the other way around. And, and, and I guess that's the bit that makes me feel bad. Uh, when it comes to people here, by the way, look, uh, first of all, we celebrate when, when people move on to better things um, or better for them or something they've chosen to do. Um, but I do still, you know, really love it when people stay longer. And I think part of that is almost rather than thinking we've got the best out of them, it's are we giving them as much as they're giving the company. And, and if we maintain that roughly in balance, I think that is a really good deal for everyone, for want of a better term. And, and, and part of that, I think, is, for example, you know, we may not pay the highest salaries. I think we're probably mid-salary for most jobs. But every year someone works for us, I want them to be getting more than a year's worth of CV enhancement if they'd been anywhere else. So every year they stay with us should be the equivalent of two years somewhere else. If you leave us after three years, you're as good as someone who's been elsewhere for six years. And, and if we can give people that growth opportunity, then for as long as they choose to stay with us, and hopefully it will be a very long time, both we and they are kind of really benefiting. And, and I think that's a genuine commitment to people that matters. Okay, I'm fascinated by this because before you said that, my challenge to you was going to be, you know, another book I recently read was called Radical Candor by Kim Scott, and she talks a lot about um, rock stars and superstars. So obviously everyone's a legend because she's American, she's smart, she's not stupid enough to suggest anything else. Um, but you have your superstars, and they're the ones that are always gunning for the next role. And, you know, by the way, she ran like HR and leadership teams at uh, Apple and Google. And so it was actually very interesting perspective she's able to give because they're very different companies. She's like, at Google, we value the superstar. At Apple, we value the rock star. Um, the rock star is the steady hands, the person that isn't gunning for someone else's job the whole time. Like at Apple, you know, it's multiple years of making sure each version is perfect. There's nothing kind of crazy. There's one big development every so often. Google, it's constant innovation, new product, new product, new product, software, software, software. So it's really interesting to think about rock stars and superstars. The challenge that I was going to ask you is um, there is a very practical limitation on um, on on company growth. Like how many career opportunities can you give to everyone in a team, you know, within a year, right? Because there's only so many leadership roles. Uh, you're hoping, I'm assuming, that not everyone in your leadership team leaves. So all those vacancies aren't suddenly there for the team lower down than them. And I guess that's really the the philosophical um, organizational challenge that I go to when I'm hearing you talk about, you know, giving everyone two years of uh, career development. It's like, how do you practically do that? Can you give me some examples of how you think about that at Octopus? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, uh, a company like Octopus is a great place to be during this period of growth because growth creates more opportunities. So rather than looking at a sort of rigid organization 
and there's a smaller number of places at each level up, we keep growing new places. Um, and, and I think part of that is recognizing, by the way, that, you know, a company is built by the talented people within it. So if we've got a talented person, rather than try to wait till there's a gap for them, let them grow something, right? Now, second thing is creating an organization of humility. So that thing about, you know, people vying for the next job, right? You know, that can create real competitiveness and internal politics and, and, and tensions. Uh, you know, really try to create a world in which, look, it's not, it's, it's not universal, but most people here probably don't care that much about their job title, right? Now, it takes a while to get used to that because you want to be able to tell your mum or your mates, you know, but, but actually some of my most senior best people have probably never had a job title change, although the responsibilities might have grown 10x in the time they've been here. And that's, that's kind of, um, you know, totemic. I, I don't, we don't have an organogram, right? Now, every now and then, like, you know, we've been forced to create one for a regulator or something, but we don't have a, a, an organogram for how we run the company. And that's really, really important because as soon as you start kind of codifying that seniority structure, it creates a real drive from people to move up it. And that creates a lot of the problems that I think, you know, mean that people are putting their effort into their position rather than the company's position. Uh, and, and then I guess the last bit on this for me is um, uh, you talk about rock stars and superstars. I, I talk about stones. So um, I don't know whether you know about the dry stone wall, but you, you see them around the country, right? And dry stone walls are made up of, of the stones of, of different shapes that are fitted together kind of carefully by a craftsperson as they build the wall. And if they get that right, these walls can last thousands of years. Now, you know, the alternative when building a wall is to get bricks. And every brick is a perfect cuboid and you stack them up. But then you need cement to hold them together and water gets in, breaks the cement. And they often don't last anywhere near as long as well-built dry stone walls. And I think, like, we... Try to think about people as having each having their own individual unique shape. And so I think what most companies try and do is they try and turn a dry stone into a brick and they knock the corners off a person and they try and put straight edges and then they can fit them neatly into an organizational structure. But actually that structure has, you know, you've lost some of the best bits of people. You get them to do stuff they're not very good at. It's much less flexible over time in the way that a dry stone wall, by the way, is pretty flexible to, you know, movements in the land and everything. So to me, building an organization that's like a dry stone wall, rather than try to turn people into cuboid bricks, is probably the octopus way. Whilst we're talking about, you know, as all great leaders do have their own analogies, so dry stone walls, um, all I could think about is where in your career and what experiences, because you've talked about Procter & Gamble, but like where do you get the insight and balls to try and create something completely new like the organizational structure you're speaking about. And I guess the reason I ask is because in so many forms in society, you know, I'm running a startup myself right now. Uh, you read books, you read playbooks, you ask fellow entrepreneurs how they do stuff, you take inspiration. It's one of my main reasons for doing the podcast, as you can imagine. This is an incredible leadership hack. Um, just learn from everyone else what they're doing. Um, but it's very easy to conform to best practice. Um, often it's sensible to conform to best practice because lots of genius other people have done it before and it's worked for them. And actually doing stuff another way can just be a massive hassle because no one even knows how to organize themselves in a new way. I think, first of all, we do read these books and, and listen to podcasts and 
kind of learn from both uh, other businesses, other leaders, and you know, academics and researchers. And yet so often when we read all that stuff, we go, that's really interesting. We forward it onto a colleague and then we carry on working exactly as we always have done. And I think part of it for me was um, making the decision that kind of when, you know, uh, we implement stuff rather than just saying that's interesting and then carry on as we used to. And we try it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter because there are plenty of organizational models we can fall back to for any particular thing. I think the second thing is, look, this is the fifth business I've started. And have you ever found that when you're having an argument with someone, um, it's very hard to change tack. But if you both just back out of it and then have the discussion again with a clean start, you can often get much further. And I think it's often like that with organizations. Like Once you've built an organization, it's very hard to change its shape. But everything you learn in the process, you can build into the next one from the beginning. And so this is, you know, this is my fifth opportunity to try all this stuff. And, and each time gets better. I think the, um, uh, we don't have a name for it, but I do have names for lots of characteristics. So for example, the dry stone wall. Um, I often talk about the porous organization. A lot of organizations are made of thick walls, a wall between the company and its customers or a wall between different functions in the company, between tech and operations, and, and between finance and marketing, and so on. And, and um, instead of thinking of the organization full of walls like that, I think it's been very porous. So the job is that information should be able to get from a customer to you know, the finance department, or the marketing department, or the tech department, very, very easily. And that people from different functions should be able to move around very easily like that as well. And, and, and what that does is means that, for example, having an organization where people spend half their time preparing PowerPoint decks to try and persuade someone else, to persuade someone else, to go to another function, to do something, they can just reach across and do it. And so I think there are lots of concepts we, we, we put a name to that help new recruits kind of adopt it. I think one last thought on this that's really interesting to me is a lot of this is very, very obvious for new joiners because it's very natural and human. It's people that join from senior roles in other organizations that often have a bit of a culture shock and it can take a few months to get used to it. And during those few months, I think it'd be quite difficult. But once they've learned it, they would never want to go back. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I realize, you know, we've jumped into uh, a lot of questions around the organizational structure, etc. I just touched on HR. Um, Talk to me about HR. Talk to me about leadership. Talk to me about um, how you handle challenges in the business from your people, assuming that not everything has gone right 100% of the time. How do you handle it? Yeah, so look, a um, couple of inspirations for me. Again, when I was at Procter & Gamble, there was a fantastic HR director, a guy called Dennis Schuler. But beyond that, I didn't really notice many HR people. Dennis just talked about the culture, the values, and the principles the organization would be run on. And he taught managers how to manage people as well as how to manage the business and in fact our when we had our reviews uh, half of the score in the review was what you'd done to build the business and the other half was what you'd done to build the organization i.e people management so although they had an hr function its job really was to, to train managers to be the hr people and then the other thing was um having built a number of businesses and worked with small businesses and, and having huge respect for businesses of all scales. You know, when you've got a business of 10 people, it doesn't have an HR function, doesn't have an HR director. Instead, the, the people leading it 
have to learn everything about you know how to motivate, inspire, manage, uh, and then deal with the tricky things when employment goes wrong, or even the legal and and, and um, uh, kind of related matters. So, if you can do that in a business of ten people, you see, typically a business of fifty might not have an HR function. Um, and and I found one of the things as I was building businesses was how empowering it was not to parcel that stuff off to someone else, but instead to make it integral to management. So when you're managing, you're not just demanding output. You're actually working with a person who is going to deliver that output. And, and, and by uh, taking full responsibility for, for that person, those people, that team, you could do a much better job than if you said, well, this bit's my responsibility and that bit is HR. So, you know, for me, I think every business I've built, uh, I don't think I've had an HR department. Um, instead, it, it's been... Um, the sort of the mantra that managers have to manage people. And, and you know, a lot of HR people felt that, you know, clearly I was naive and I'd never met good HR. I genuinely met brilliant HR. Dennis Shuler at P&G was incredible. Um, and um, uh, others would say, like, what do you do if something goes wrong? But look, I've, I've, I've run enough businesses. Things have gone very, very wrong. Um, and, and what you do is, you know, you learn how to do all the things that a really good professional HR function would do to prevent them in the first place and deal with them when they happen. Um, and, and it's so empowering and enriching for managers to learn that and add to their skill base. How was it then having to manage all of that stuff during the pandemic? So during an unprecedented time where there isn't really a playbook, um, how did that affect Octopus and how did that affect your, your leadership skills? So I think um, the day before lockdown, um, look, Octopus uh, is already, it's a very tech-centric business. We built a massive tech platform called Kraken that the whole business runs on. We're entirely cloud-based. There are no servers in our offices. So on the day when we're going to lockdown, it was literally saying to everyone, remember to take your laptop power supplies home and we'll see you the other side of this. We already had like, you know, dozens of people that worked fully remotely, often returning mums, for example, that, you know, and dads actually both, uh, who, who could make this job work with their you know family situation when other employees couldn't do that so we had kind of quite a head start both technically and organizationally and then uh, what that meant was that on day one of lockdown we were able to carry on helping our customers driving our projects building our innovation building our tech exactly as we had done before and then we could devote the effort to looking after our team while other companies were trying to get the basics working looking after our team you know we created um uh, Octo Kids TV, so that parents who've got their kids at home will try to do their work. Uh, we were putting together special sort of interactive TV stuff for the kids, even before schools were ready to do like you know online schooling, um, and putting together sort of uh, online wellness stuff for people, uh, sending care packs out. So I think it's a really interesting thing that if. if it's not that we knew the pandemic was coming. Obviously, no one was prepared for that contingency. But if you're running a resilient, robust organization that's at the, the kind of front of the tech curve, it was a lot easier to move into that world and then look after our people. Now, don't get me wrong, though. I mean, I think it was brutal. Like, we employ loads of young people whose job it is to speak to customers. And you've got customers phoning up who can't pay their energy bills or struggling with the pandemic. Worse, they've got relatives who are ill or even, you know, sadly sometimes dying. Talking to our team, and we've got a 22-year-old 
sitting on the end of their bed in a shared house, dealing with that without anyone to turn to and without the coaching guidance and, um, and, and the kind of care that we, that we normally got in an office environment. So we had to find ways to provide that. And it has been so incredible to be able to welcome particularly the customer teams and actually now so many other teams back to the office and, and you know, be able once again to provide the, the, the training and the culture that people got used to. And, you know, it's very fitting, obviously a total coincidence slash, you know, you predicted COVID and now you predict that we talk on the hottest day of the year because you're Nostradamus. Um, but hottest day ever in the UK. Um, very relevant time to be talking about energy bills, energy crisis, the environment. Um, obviously, we're both sweltering away on our own, own devices, but what are the thoughts that spring to mind from someone who spends their life and energy obviously building a company that cares about this stuff um have you seen the film don't look up yes so good Um, it's so painful so painful but so good so painful and we're living it right yeah right now i think london today is hotter than madrid has ever been and by the way madrid's been very very hot lately Seville in Spain has set record temperatures, hundreds of people killed by floods in South Africa, wildfires across Portugal. Um, And yet, you know, I hear politicians saying, you know, we can't afford to um, pay for net zero. Um, And I find it mind boggling. And the real tragedy of that is that because of the investments society have made so far, Net zero is a cheaper society than the one we're in today. Um, even before the current fossil fuel price crisis, renewable electricity was cheaper than electricity from gas. And it gets cheaper every year. The more of it we build, the cheaper it gets. So it is absolutely unconscionable that anyone questions whether we should be paying for net zero because it is cheaper. And the idea that anybody currently is is still willing to gamble, like even if the 97% of scientists that say that climate change is real, is man-made and is caused by emissions, mainly of carbon dioxide and of methane, even if those 97% are wrong, right? Is it really worth taking the gamble with the one planet we've got while we're seeing this happening? And it's mind-blowing that the best international targets we've got get us to, you know, um, a net zero by 2050. We've got 28 more years in which the world is planning to make things worse. So, look, I'm a huge optimist. We've got all the solutions to tackle climate change right now. We don't need any new inventions. It'd be amazing if we create nuclear fusion. It'll be wonderful if we have, like, you know, battery-powered or hydrogen aeroplanes. But basically, we can get to net zero with stuff we've already got, and everything else just makes it better and cheaper and faster. So um, uh, the the tragedy is that incumbent thinking and incumbent interests and the exceptionally slow movements of governments and bureaucracies are preventing those solutions being deployed. Uh, do Do you talk much about politics? Not really. I mean, I think, look, our job as a company, and I can say hand on heart, We've worked with politicians of every colour. We're present in many countries. And most of the political leaders that I've met genuinely want to do something about climate change. 
They they know it's real. And regardless of their political color, I found on the whole, the vast majority are really serious about it. But it's hard for them to drive the incumbent machinery to change things. Um, and there's a lot of barriers. Yeah, I guess the reason I'm asking is, you know, I'm basically, you know, part of the reason I'm asking is because, um, you know, God knows, no, no point talking about politics to someone who isn't comfortable talking about it. It's a very thorny topic and not worth it, naturally, for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, you've just you mentioned in, in passing, you know, the Tory leadership at the moment. You know, there are people ignoring the fact that net zero isn't the highest thing on the agenda. But as you'll know, like, you know, you're talking about a lot of populist um, politicians who will be deciding their priorities of what to talk about based on what they think they're most likely to be voted on by a general population in, you know, and this is kind of part of the issue with the don't look up thing. It's like, I can't ever tell really, and is it tail wagging the dog? It's like the politicians are very intelligent people, but they are politicians. So they know how important this stuff is, but they crave power. So they get the votes. And if the people aren't going to vote for those things, then how do we drive that change? This is kind of the perpetual cycle you get into, isn't it? So look, I mean, first of all, as a company, we made the decision to be out and loud and proud about what's required for climate change. So you'll see, for tackling climate change, you'll see ads all over the UK and indeed the other countries we operate in um, you know, saying gas is expensive, wind is cheap, build more wind. We have a very clear position. We do the same with solar. Currently, there's a bunch of ads talking about the fact we're planning, we're backing um, plans for a vast solar and wind farm in Morocco that will provide cheap, clean energy for Africa and a cable to bring it to the UK. And we'll do more and more of this stuff. And we will push these projects. And what we're doing is helping demonstrate to politicians that renewables are popular because they're a solution not only to uh, climate change, but also to expensive energy. The second thing is, um, look, we, I talk to politicians all the time. 87% of people in the UK that live near a wind farm support wind farms. Um, the, um, across every voter group, every political party, net zero is net popular. And it's typically 60 to 90% of people support it. You could look at old people that are members of the Conservative Party. You could look at young people that are members of the Green Party. Net zero is popular. And look, increasingly, I think that message is landing. The challenge now is, is increasingly not the political one, but it's the institutional one. So, for example, we've got an, a grid in the UK and indeed in every advanced economy that is designed around fossil fuels. We've got to completely reconstruct it. Now, people say, how are you going to pay for that? The reality is it will make our energy cheaper than it's ever been. So that investment, which is readily available, make it cheaper. But the people who own those grids, operate them, whose jobs are attached to it in the supply chain, obviously they feel threatened and we've got to take them on the journey as well. The same with, um, you know, look, gas networks. Most countries have got massive networks of gas pipes and they're increasingly going to be unnecessary. Now, Octopus is out and proud and loud and, and saying, look, let's talk about the future of that because we're better off being honest about it but that kind of change is going to be difficult. Okay, Greg, I mean, a question I really want to ask you before before we do wrap up is, I don't think energy companies have really ever had more awareness um, than they do right now, right? Obviously, Russia, um, Putin, Ukraine, uh, energy crisis everywhere. It's on everyone's agenda the entire time. Um, what's it like being the CEO of an energy company during this time? Are you finding a lot more vitriol? Are you finding love? Are you finding surprise that people were so passionate about it? Has it been a big change for you? 
all of the above. I think prior to the energy crisis, Octopus was, you know, we felt very confident that we were bringing people solutions to some of the biggest issues. We were driving down energy costs. We were bringing clean energy, creating jobs, creating a new energy system, making it possible to drive clean green electric cars and so on. I think what the energy crisis does is, first of all, it makes that mission all the more important. But the reality is, you know, we can't drive down energy costs at the moment because we're stuck with this global fossil fuel crisis and we're stuck with a fossil fuel system. And right now, you know, look, on a very personal level, I have to go on TV and, and talk to people about the fact that bills are increasing astronomically and it's out of our hands. But where the, you know, where the people have to talk to customers about that and, and they're where the people they have to pay. And that's not always easy. But I'd rather be honest with people about that and help them understand what's to come because, you know, it's getting going to get keep getting worse. I'm sure it will get better at some point, but we don't know when that will be yet. To talk about the causes of it. You know, the, the, the causes of this started actually prior to Ukraine in, uh, being invaded by Russia. It started with um, the post-pandemic supply chain issues. Ukrainian being invaded was horrific in every way and, and I think has demonstrated the extent to which fossil fuels give both the leverage and the resources to dictators. And the fact we have a system that's built around fossil fuels means that this happens from time to time. It's happened kind of every decade or so and we have to escape from it. So I think my job really is to be really um, upfront with people about the situation and the causes, but be resolute that we cannot, you know, we have to now stay, double down on the solution. The more renewables we build, the cheaper energy we'll get, and uh, the more we can ensure this never happens again. Um, my final question to you, and I ask every guest, is uh, what is the best piece of advice you've got for leaders that are listening to you today, um, want to go on their own leadership journey, their own creative journey, whatever path that takes them on? You can't be a leader without followers. Like people are everything. Um, and it's people that build businesses. So I think so often we have this perception from big businesses in particular that people are a cost and the job of the big business is to keep getting rid of the people. And instead, I think when you want to grow businesses and innovate, it's people that will create that future. So embracing people is absolutely everything. Greg Jackson, founder and CEO of Octopus Energy. If you found this interview as fascinating as I did, then let us know. We'd love to hear from you, especially what you think about how we can make the show better. You can email us at hello at secretleaders.com. Next week on Secret Leaders. So we launched day one in like four countries, expanded to like 10 countries within four or five months and forgot that it would be good to have product market fit before you go to those 10 countries. We literally had a MasterCard reader that worked somewhat in Germany, but let's say in the UK, where more than half of the cards are Visa cards, it's a quite shit product. That's Mark Alexander Christ, the co-founder of SumUp, a fintech company that provides, among other things, card readers to small businesses. They're now used by over 4 million merchants worldwide and were recently valued at 8 billion euros. But there were plenty of mistakes along the way, some that nearly proved fatal. Find out how they turned them into successes. 
Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcasts, Will Stolomon.